0: Welcome to the Redemptions Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information, feel free to visit our website, RedemptionsHill.com. All right, good morning. i read 1 Corinthians 16, 5 through uh, the end for us this morning. This is the text for today. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has been opened to me and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord, as am I. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Verse 12. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts of Achaia, that's how I'm going to say it. Uh, and they have devoted themselves to the servants of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice of the coming of Stephanus and Fortunus and uh, Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence. For they have refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Priscilla together with the church in their house send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings, greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write the greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you, my love be with you, and all Uh, Christ Jesus, all in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. This is our final text. So uh, here it is. Uh, This is, if my math is correct, the 22nd and final message in this series for us from a series that has been uh, possibly surprisingly relevant to us. Uh, I don't know if you've taken the time to think about it, but a church almost 2,000 years ago had a whole lot of similarities to us. Uh, They struggled with divisions inside of uh, the body and a lack of unity and love. Uh, They struggled with how they handled sex, marriage, and singleness. Uh, They struggled mightily with knowing how to lay down their rights in order to love people well. Uh, how to lay down their rights to be on mission. They struggle to know kind of how to do this, how to gather in a healthy way. Uh, they struggle to earnestly want the Holy Spirit to come and kind of wreck what they're doing. Uh, they struggled also to live inside the reality of a resurrected King Jesus every day. When we lay out the pieces in that way, when we can just kind of scatter them around to see what we have, we have to kind of swallow the hard pill of realizing that we are Corinth and they are us. Uh, Even though it's hard to realize our church and the modern church kind of looks like that, here is the beautiful hope found in that book. Paul says to all of us, uh, it's okay, you're not too far gone, though. Uh, The gospel can reshape all of our stories. He wasn't writing 1 Corinthians kind of as a sentence handed down to to smash Corinth or us with. He wasn't writing it as the the nail in the coffin to say, hey, you failed. Why don't you just kind of shut down shop? No, he was reminding them that they again needed to see life through a gospel lens, which is the announcement of Jesus and how that changes all things. So often our our struggles or our sins or maybe our broken identities boil down to this. We have forgot what is true about Jesus, what he has done, and what that makes true about us. So Paul seeks to remind them of this. He seeks to remind us of this and go, hey, let that shape your story. Now, as we close down this last chapter, oftentimes the impulse would be at the end of a book to kind of fly through the end. Like, I'm done. I've got all the relevant stuff out of it. Your Bible even gives these verses kind of boring, empty headings, right? If you look at the the black titles on most of your Bibles, it'll say plans for travel. That's not exciting. Final instructions. Uh, greetings, um, but these these words definitely are not empty. Paul will, even with these details like travel plans and greetings, he will still wisely sew in uh, words in the end that captures the entire drive of the book. So he will waste no words at the end to make sure that we are called to see, experience, and walk in light of a triumphant King Jesus. Now, when reading this chapter and hearing Paul's call to go move forward and fight, I, I was reminded of a movie. I tried to decide if I should use it or not. I will. Maybe it wouldn't be a good idea, and we'll find out later. But there, there, there's a movie that it, that it made me think of quite a, a bit. In the movie, the main character is a guy named Marty McFly. Maybe it'll date me a little bit. Uh, he time-travels with his crazy friend, Doc, to 30 years into uh, the future, and one of the things that this main character does 30 years in the future is he buys in the future what is called Gray's Sports Almanac. Some of you are following me, uh, and that book contains stats for 50 years of Sports Uh, games and wins and all kinds of important information for 50 years, right? He goes to the future, he gets that, and his idea is, you know what, I'm going to take this book back to the present, uh, and I'm going to kind of use it as an insurance policy in case life goes sideways on me. Uh, If that happens, I'm going to use this bet or this book, and I'm going to place some gambling bets, and I'm going to make loads and loads of, of money, Right, so if you're following, he got from the future a book that had uh, games from his future documented, and he could use that, that book to play sure thing bets if he wanted to. Here's the idea if all of that fell and did not work. The idea is if you know the future, you can be insanely confident in the present. If you understand what's coming, if you know the future, it changes your ability to thrive in the present. If you know the future, if you know the outcome of things, don't you have to live boldly in light of what you know? Why? Because you know what's going to happen. Uh, In that movie, there's an alternate reality, the bad guy steals the book, he makes a lot of money, it's it's a good movie. But obviously, that's not the storyline that Paul had in mind, but there are some similar notes that made me think of that movie when reading this, right? So we've got a track with a theme of the entire book, but more specifically, if we look at chapter 15, Paul declared emphatically, Christ is not dead, he is in fact raised. This is what is true about him. The resurrection is true, and then one day, King Jesus will come back, and he will crush all of his enemies, the last being sin and death. His point was that a resurrected Jesus and returning Jesus effectively takes our worst-case scenario off the table, death. He promises to renew and restore all things one day, even wiping away our tears and comforting us himself. Paul declares that Jesus' domination over death and evil will be so exhaustive, so complete, so full, that we'll cry out in the the end of days, death is swallowed up in victory. And you got to hear kind of this glorious announcement, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The understanding is it's gone because Jesus has defeated it. If this is our future, If this is our hope in King Jesus, that King Jesus wins, if we know the end of the story, if we know what is coming for us, uh, Paul says in a very Blake Sellers-ish way, like, let's go, right? Let's do this. We know what's going to happen. So Paul so thoroughly had sold out his life to this narrative of what he knew was coming in Jesus' promises that he had to be infuriating to anyone who didn't like him. Philippians one eighteen through twenty one says this. Yes, and I Paul wrote this. Yes, and I will rejoice. He's not at a party rejoicing here. For I know that through your prayers and through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. This the situation. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul says this, you know what? I know that this, my situation is going to turn out for my deliverance. Christ won't shame me, so I will be courageous Christ will be honored in all that I do in my life or my death. Do you know what this is in that? He's in prison. He doesn't know if he's going to get out. He doesn't know if he's going to be killed there. He is in prison but says, hey, you know what? It, it, It doesn't matter. If I live, if they don't kill me, to live is Christ. It's all good. And if they take my life, to die is gain because I get Christ. So that works as well. His perspective in this is no matter what way things shake out, I get delivered. I either get delivered from a jail cell and I I have more years or I get delivered right to glory, which is, you know, that's okay to me. So he goes, so bring it. Whatever you got, I'm fine either way. Yes, some ways would probably be not as fun as others, but no matter what, Jesus will not leave me hanging. He will not disappoint me, so I am good. He knew the future so it affected the way that he was able to react in the present. So you might hear that and think, well, yeah, that's great, but Paul's a special kind of crazy. Like, I don't know if I can do that. Uh, his faith was different than most people, so how can I live like that? And, and I, and I kind of answer it this way. It's kind of simple. We can live like that if we are in Christ because we have the same exact promise and hope as he does. Right? Paul didn't have a future coming to him that's better than ours. He didn't have a better promise. He didn't have a a more comprehensive gospel than we do. He just believed the gospel more than we do, and that made him dangerous and courageous. But he invites us to walk into the same kind of courage. That's why towards the end of chapter 15, he says, because of all that, because we know the future, because we know what happens, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. He's saying, if you know the end, if you know how the story fades into the credits, then be steadfast. Don't waver. Don't, uh, don't doubt. Don't let fear push you around. Be immovable. Stand in the light of God's grace and refuse to let it go. And because you won't let it go, abound in the work of the Lord. Now hear me, we do not ever preach a salvation by works message here, but we also can never shy away from preaching salvation uh, that you have does works. Uh, read the book of, of James. Faith without works is dead. If you live this type of life that you say is transformed, but your life isn't transformed, you're not really actually transformed. If the gospel transforms us, it flows into the way that we live. It shows itself in our lives through us working for, following, and honoring Christ's cause. And though working for Christ's cause will be difficult, it will not be in vain, it will not be for nothing, and it will not be for naught. Here's the, the reality, not trying to go overly dark, but tons of people will be on their deathbed and they will realize that they accomplished absolutely nothing of lasting value in their days. Right? It will be the end and they will realize they lived on autopilot being uh, pushed and pulled around by their whims, by culture's whims and things like that. And if they're really, really honest, many, many people on their deathbed will realize that their life was dictated more by their selfishness than anything else. And here Paul invites us out of it. Why? Because Christ invites us out of it as well. Christ gave himself up for us and called us to follow him. So Paul spends the book of 1 Corinthians helping the church learn. Here's where we're going to see the whole arch. He's helping the church learn to apply the gospel, especially in their issues of brokenness and struggle in the moment. But that pursuit was never a, a, a kind of end unto itself. It wasn't the only goal, meaning Paul didn't want to see the church patched up so she could just look prettier. Paul wanted to see the church patched up so it would mount up and begin to fight again like it was called to. This is the tone get healthy and get after it. Not get healthy and, and, and make people think that you're great. Get healthy and get after it. Is it going to be hard? It's going to be crazy hard. But get healthy and get after it because a church was never meant to be a safe social club that you attend whenever you don't have conflicts on your calendar. That's not a church, that's a hobby. The church is and was and always will be the bride of Christ, united to worship God the Father, while actively engaging in the redemptive mission of Christ our King. That is what it is. An amen. Yes. Caught me off guard. That was awesome. I'll cut that out of the podcast. All right. (laughs) Ooh. All right. So I... um, I don't give all of my sermons titles, but I did this one, and I'm going to share it with you. Um, this is what kept going through my head as I read these final verses. Fight hell, not each other. All right. I hear you. That may sound corny to some. It may sound intense to some. It may sound weird to others, but that's okay. Uh, these parts of the title are, are, are really intentional and I think they encapsulate Paul's drive over the entire book. Christianity, make no mistake, is a call to action. Your action doesn't save you, but after you've been saved, it's a call to action and a call to fight. Without a call to action, you are not a Christian. But that fight isn't meant to be against the whole world. You're not just angry holding signs that say terrible things everywhere. That's not your fight. And a Christian isn't, is most certainly not to, meant to attack and fight his brothers and sisters all the time. To be a Christian is a call to push back darkness and fight against hell, not each other. Now, I want to press a little bit. If, if that seems still out there, just kind of like too much for, for you, he, hear these verses, and I'm going to blast through a list of them. We'll have them on here. Uh, it, it's going to be too fast for you to, to process them fully. You can write down where they're at if you want. Uh, but mainly what I want you to grasp out of this is uh, in these verses all over the New Testament, you're going to hear descriptions of our faith. And they're not going to sound like peace and ease. They're going to sound like a fight and tension and difficulty. Ephesians 6.10. I, I, yeah, there we go. Cool, thank you. Ephesians 6.10. Just look at the words with, with, with honest eyes and just, start, and just decide, okay, what's there? Finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you may take your stand against the devil's schemes. Armor and taking a stand sounds like a fight. 1 Peter 5.8, be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. You have an enemy that wants to devour you. That sounds like a fight. 2 Corinthians 10.4-5, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to, to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every, pre, uh, every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Like, the weapons, like that, that's self-explanatory. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. If someone wants to steal and kill and destroy you, that sounds like a fight. John 16, I, Jesus, have told you these things so that in me, in him, you may have peace. But in the world, you're going to have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. In me, you have peace. Out there, it's going to be crazy. Over and over, we find that the language of following Jesus brings with it a fight. Just, just, just honestly, some of you here find yourself disillusioned with Christianity because someone told you or you decided to believe that Christianity would be an amenity that would just make your life easier. That's not in the Bible. Uh, Christ didn't come to make things easy for you. He came to save your soul and then demand your allegiance. I've given you a new name. Follow me. Uh, to, to walk forward in his continual path of pushing back darkness. This pursuit will walk you headlong into hard stuff at times. Is your whole life going to be terrible? No. Are there going to be difficult things that your faith walks you into? Yes. And Jesus says, and if that happens or when that happens, fear not because I'm with you. I won't leave you. It's going to get hairy. It's going to get difficult, but don't worry. I'm with you Always. See, a huge part of why the modern church seems so anemic and weak is that she has forgotten that she was in a fight. And because she has forgotten that, she's been lulled to sleep. Instead of teaching people Christianity was a difficult road for quite a long time, many have started doing this. They lower the bar of what Christianity is to make it easier for people to come around. But here's the problem. When you lower the bar, you lose the bride. The same way you don't change the gospel, you don't change the bride. Lowering the bar so people don't have to fight is actually what hurts them. Yeah, you may have more people who gather around. You, you, you may be trying to, to just get people around Bible, but you're actually hurting them because you're framing up the, the, the wrong faith for them. So watch as Paul does a masterful job weaving this theme of fighting hell, not each other, into what seems like a bunch of random details at the very end of this book. In these details, uh, we will find some pragmatics, we'll find some lessons, we'll find some intents, uh, but there there will be things, if we're deciding, hey, I want to engage, this end helps us with that. Uh, verses 5 through 9. What we saw is Paul said, I I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective uh, work has been opened to me and then check the comma. Oh, and, and there I have many adversaries. A lot of people hate me, so I might stay there. Paul says, hey, I, I, I want to come see you after Macedonia. I really, really want to be able to stay for a while. Like, honestly, I'd like to be able to stay with you for the whole winter. He, just hears words. There's honest words from a man. I really would like to hang out for a while. I've cared for you for a long time. I'd love to spend an extended time with you. I hope that the Lord permits me to do so. I want to. My aim is, my desire is to spend time with you, Corinth. That is his preference. That is his plan A. That is his desire. And then it says, but. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost or maybe even longer if needed. Why? Because there is a wide door for effective ministry for me there. Oh yeah, and there's a ton of people who hate me, and they're going to try really hard to hurt me and destroy everything I'm going to do. Paul has been so transformed by the gospel that his life plans and wants, hear me, become flexible when needed in order to see the gospel advance. Can you see that? Paul sacrificed what he'd rather do to stay in a place that he didn't want to be, and people uh, opposed him. He was staying in the middle of a horribly hard situation so the gospel could advance. I will stay in the middle of tension for the cause of Christ. Is your life flexible this way? Would you change your plans? Would you change any plan? Is your life flexible where obedience could win over preference? And notice this, at times the hardest thing that we have to face will produce the most fruit. We're taught over and over and over, run from hardship. The Bible says, no, that's probably the place you need to sit for a little bit. Paul is not looking for the path of least resistance at every turn. So he could be used by God and effective in seeing the gospel go forward. Point one, to fight hell and not each other, your life has to be flexible. To be obedient, flexible to be missional, and flexible to be inconvenienced. Is that true of you? Right, you know my cynic heart if you've known me very well. If you say it was true of you, because we love to project what we want to be, if you say that you are flexible, my, my follow-up question is prove it How? How? And I don't point that out to got you, any of us, or shame any of us. Here's my hope is that the Holy Spirit would work through faithful marks of Christianity to poke and prod wherever He needs to. Because if we follow the cultures, do whatever's best for you, nonsense, we will never be flexible, and we will be rigid, selfish creatures. It will not lead you in the path of the gospel. Then it says, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease. He's doing good work in the Lord as I am. Let no one despise him. Help him on his way that he may return to me for I'm expecting him with the brothers. This part is simple and short. To fight hell and not each other practically means don't show partiality to some and hate others because they're not in your crew. Simply don't fight teammates. Timothy, a fellow believer, was doing good work. Maybe he wasn't like a part of their inner circle, and Paul's just going, just simply, that's fine. If he's on our team, be kind to him. We can never push back darkness if we're too busy pushing each other. Unity. That's why over and over and over, Paul in this book is calling us to love each other. Then he presses this theme even further. Verse 12, now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers... But it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Apollos was a brother that Paul strongly wanted to go do something, and Apollos is like, Yeah, 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 I ain't doing it. Don't care, not doing it. He heard what Paul wanted and rejected it. They did not see eye to eye. And yet what happens? There's a I mean, that's a conflict of brewing. And yet Paul calls him a brother, a fellow Christian. We can't fight hell and not each other if every time we disagree someone we've, with someone, we villainize them. Corinth had a history of looking for petty reasons to divide and fight each other. And Paul says, hey, sometimes we can agree to disagree. Not everything is a division issue. Uh, we can have different opinions and not write each other off. Don't fight teammates, he says in verse 10. Here's the one that hits our pride. Don't fight teammates even when they think you're wrong in verse 12. If you think those two examples are too basic, uh, I'd urge you just to look around. Right? L- look around the world. The church, that means us two for too long has fought each other. We have had misdirected hostility over things that really don't matter, and the enemy of God would left, like nothing more to sideline the church because we won't stop just bickering and yelling at each other. At the core, you can never go to war if you're always shooting the teammate beside you. Verse 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, and let all that you do be done in love. Paul lays out five verbs, actions, pursuits, virtues, That he says shouldn't be for the few; it should be for Christians. Be watchful, stand firm, act like men. Be um, stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong and do all things in love. Now, notice before we explain this, and and this isn't as much to nerd out, but to show you what he's saying. These are all what the Bible calls uh, present imperatives. Uh, So what that means is all of these are describing continuous states of the Christian faith. So when he says things like stand firm, he's not going like, hey, can you tell me one time in the last 24 months that you've stand firm? Nailed it. He's going, no, stand firm all of your life. That is who you are now. It's a continuous thing that we should be watching for, okay? So the first one, be watchful. This is to be on guard, to be alert, and to pay attention, A great way to put this is to have determined effort of wakefulness in your life. Determined effort of wakefulness. It's easy to push faith into the margins of our life, to turn on autopilot. But Paul is saying intentionally keep an eye on your heart, on your walk, on your church, on your life, on the gospel. Don't go to sleep. Be watchful. Continuously. And stand firm in the faith. Um, it is clear that life will be hard at times and it will push us around at times. Um, a, a great way to understand this is when life pushes you, remain in unwavering confidence, not in yourself but in Jesus. Don't let the world change your mind or influence your actions all the time. Instead, let the gospel and your church family speak into your life. You have an anchor for your soul, so you don't need to act untethered anymore. Uh, a way to think of this and understand this is maybe go read the parable of the soils this week. There's a parable of different soils, and the whole point is all of them have the same gospel, but some of them, when they hear the gospel, when anything gets difficult, they just the gospel goes out the window. The next one, act like men. This is a really hard one to render in English. Um, it actually has nothing to do with just being a macho man. It, it, it's for all people. It actually just means be courageous. Be courageous. It, it, it is telling us to be a Christian and walk in the light of the gospel will cause people at times to reject you and push you away. Uh, the gospel got Jesus killed. You shouldn't be surprised if some people just get offended by you if you walk in light of it. To be courageous is not to fold all the time when this happens, because it will happen. Then be strong. Uh, This was tied to the statement before about being courageous. Uh, It's a call not to be physically strong, but spiritually strong. Think because the joy of the Lord is my strength, I will engage with that joy, my Lord, continually, and then it will express itself in courageous and powerful ways through my life. Again, this is not self-actualization type of of courage. You don't just sit there and tell yourself, I'm strong, I'm strong, I'm strong. That's not it. The root of our strength and courage is Jesus. So Paul is saying tap into the root of that and then find strength in it. Watch as you become more steadfast and and immovable because you depend on and lean into Jesus more. On on a a base level, and I... I had to have a talk with, with my son this week. Um, sometimes doing the right thing is hard, right? So he, he got caught, and he, and he told the not truth. He lied. And so I sat with him on his bed, and I just talked to him. I was like, hey, why'd you do that? And he's like, well, I don't want to get in trouble. I'm like, yeah. There's going to be moments in life that doing the right thing is going to cause you difficulty, but to be a man of integrity means you're going to have to do that. Also, to follow the example of, of Jesus, to trust God is to walk into truth, even if truth is the hard thing. You will have to be courageous and strong to do that, because you will have a million choices, which is like, oh, this is easier, but oh, it's also wrong. Let all things be done in love. We've all done things out of spite frustration, right? And just I'll do it. I hate it in you, but I'll do it, Right? Just me. And we've engaged in certain pursuits also in in love and compassion when we do them. To Paul, and more importantly to Jesus, how we do things is as important as what we do. This points back to 1 Corinthians 13, the love section. Love builds up. It is the authenticator of a healthy Christian life. So the motive is just as important as what we do. Look around the world. It's not unique to see a person tearing another person down. It's not special. You can see it everywhere. It's it's not new to see someone engaging in outrage, trying to demolish another person and and kind of being haughty. It's everywhere. What is uh, special and unique is seeing people build other people up in love. Paul wants to land the plane with a reminder of this to the church. We are called to fight hell by means of not destroying people, but by loving them and sharing the gospel with them. We cannot see gospel ministry or the kingdom of God advance if we are busy engaging others in hostile and unloving ways all the time. And just, just realistically, this flows into everything. You set up a speaker here on a serving crew. If you're in a terrible attitude, you're tearing stuff down. Like you may have set up a speaker, but you're hurting what we do. We do things out of love for Jesus. It flows into all things. Side note, maybe you have to apologize for this. I've had a ton of conversations where people are like, well, I don't have a loving attitude, so I quit. That's a childish response. When you don't have love in doing something, you should probably confess that, engage with other people about it, and pray over it. The world acts that way. Not people who are transformed by the gospel. To quit because you are not loving is not the right answer. Now, are there times where everybody needs a break from certain things? Absolutely, but it's so childish to just go, I had a bad attitude, so I'm not going to do it anymore. That shows everyone Jesus. Good job. That was not helpful. Um, Let me run these by you. Here's the ask. I don't want to shame or push anything on. Here's here's the hope. The Holy Spirit would press on you however needed. Maybe you're good, maybe you're not. I don't know where you're at in all of them. The first one, are you alert right now? Are you adamantly awake about your faith right now? Are you just kind of moving from week to week and you you engage with the faith when you can or to the best of your ability you say, but that really just kind of means when it's convenient, are you adamantly awake right now or are you not? The Holy Spirit may want to help you right here and right now with that. The step would be to confess it, Man, man, I'm not, and ask for help. Are you standing firm or has your fear of man or desperation for approval got to a level where you just can't hardly act? Are you so afraid of being that guy that you've effectively grown silent? What you need to hear is Jesus approves of you, and don't be surprised when other people don't. The Holy Spirit may want to help you with that right here and right now. Are you not courageous in your faith right now, or maybe you've never been? Maybe you tried to be courageous one time, and you just got knocked on your tail, and you feel crazy for it. Maybe you're too busy thinking of the worst case scenarios and all things that you're paralyzed. The Holy Spirit may want to help you with that as well, right here and right now. Are you not strong? Like you know the right thing to do, you just never do it. You feel powerless. You feel constantly fickle and empty, so empty that you wonder if your faith is even alive. You feel as if you don't matter and you could never make a difference. The Holy Spirit may want to help you with that right here and right now. To root your strength again in Christ, the one who conquered death. And do you see the love, uh, do you see love as the motive for what you've been doing lately or you just kind of do things? Maybe even do them with frustration and bitterness as the underlying emotion. That one, I can just tell you, the Holy Spirit does want to help you out with that. I believe it. I've said it many times over the last month. I believe God is doing something great in us. I believe he's turning redemption's hill upside down, that he is in the process of replacing bitterness, anger, and frustration, and resentment with real, tangible, and actual love for brothers and sisters around us. I've seen it. He's done it in me, and he's done it in others. If this is what you're sensing, man, I... Need help with that? Just ask the Spirit this morning to help you. Confess, like, man, I'm, something's wrong with my heart. Like, I I'm just I'm mad over things I shouldn't be. I'm frustrated over things I shouldn't be. And I don't even know why. Ask Him for help. Confess and ask for help, and I believe that He will help you. In the words of Corinthians before, what's our hope? That we would learn to love each other well, to bear all things, to believe the best out of each other, instead of always thinking the the, the worst that we would hope the best for other people and that we would endure hard things next to them. This is uh, my prayer. This is the prayer that was even in this book and I hope that it would be your prayer with us together. Verse 15, now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia, uh, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanas and Fortunus and Echicus because they have made up for your absence. Focus in on verse 18. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The last section is, is kind of jam-packed with good stuff for us to process and actually do, to, to, to implement it. This is where pragmatism should actually be grabbed a hold of. Paul plainly says, uh, be subject to, listen to, and follow those who have devoted themselves to the, servant, uh, the service of the saints. What does this mean? It means in a world where nobody wants to submit to anyone, submit to those who have given themselves to shepherd and pastor you. This is the beauty of exegetical preaching. I don't have to apologize for that. It's just the next text. Right? I'm not super ticked. I'm like, oh, we're doing this one this week. It's just what's there. Jesus put shepherds over sheep because he thought they needed them. So to fight well and live faithfully will be to submit to someone and embrace that process. Here may be the more tangible one, because maybe you don't have a problem with that. Here's the more tangible one, for one, to, uh, one that we could grasp a hold of like, before we even leave here. At the end, Paul points out some people who had refreshed his soul. Like they have actually literally been good for, stirred his affection, uh, they, they discipled him, they helped him, him even grow, and he recognized these people who had helped him flourish spiritually, and Paul says, give recognition to such people when you find that you have those type of people around you as well. You have people who help build you up, who speak into you, who help you grow, fight the awkwardness, and speak up to tell them they do so. Tell them they're appreciated, that you're grateful, that their efforts aren't in vain. And then here's this, fight the awkwardness and praise them in front of other people. Declare how much of a blessing. Do you know what John did for me and how helpful that is? And do you know how much he cares for me? These types of things are how we are built up. How do we battle bitterness, resentment, and frustration as a group of people? Paul is telling us one way is to audibly love and recognize people as a habit. Man, I've got to grow in this one. Reach out and tell people you're grateful for the way they help you grow. And watch as that building up strengthens us. This is why the Bible says fight to outdo one another in honor. Like literally try to manually outdo each other and honoring other people and telling uh, people how someone has been a blessing for you. Literally work to build up other people by praising their gospel work. Now now hear this. This is not an empty call to give everyone a trophy and praise everyone. Like there are people around you who they've literally done nothing to refresh you and they've actually stolen much from you. You don't have to praise them. But the people who are around you who actually have refreshed you and poured into you and loved you well, tell them. Tell other people. This will build us up. It's, problematic when we feel like, well, I just got to say something nice about everyone. At some times, there's not very much nice to say about people. He's not telling you to be fake, but he is saying, speak up to the people who've built you up. Paul then closes by reiterating a huge truth that goes all over his letters. We shouldn't be surprised by it. He implores us to be alert, stand firm, be courageous, be strong, do all things in love. And then he maybe throws a shocker at you, and he says, and if someone doesn't love the Lord... And if they begin changing the gospel to say that Jesus, the Lord, isn't needed, let them be accursed. What's this point? You don't need to try and love them. You throw them out. This is a call. Be careful of false teachers who change the gospel. This is a, a high point of eldership, why they're supposed to watch over at points of the church. We are called to love each other well, but we are not called to endure wolves who change the gospel. Those are people you fight. Now, Paul says something that might be foreign to your heart and mind. He says, Oh Lord, come. Though Paul won't back down or stop fighting, he still does yearn for the day when the fight is over. This is back to the hope. He yearns for the day when Jesus will come back. He's not afraid of a fight, but he doesn't always want to fight everybody. He longs for the peace that only King Jesus will bring to our world. And that is how the book of 1 Corinthians pretty much ends a call to arms to get in and engage in the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, some practical pursuits and things to keep in mind if you decide and you want to get in the fray, which is a.k.a. be a Christian, man, I think that this book probably couldn't come at a better time for us. There's been a collective kind of patching up and strengthening, but also a collective call away from ourselves and towards Savior King Jesus to follow him. It's pretty much what the entire book does. I don't know what exactly that looks like for each of you, but I do want to give you some handles. If you if you are feeling a call to engage, of like, man, I haven't been strong or courageous, I haven't been alert or active, and like, I'm not being shamed to do a ton of stuff. I just feel God drawing me. If if you are feeling the Holy Spirit kind of mess with your heart to labor differently now, might you consider doing this? Ending your year with intentionality. Don't start a New Year's resolution because you know you're not going to do it. In the year, by this afternoon, and, and mornings throughout the end of this year, why don't you just ask the Holy Spirit, hey, will you show me what faithfulness looks like for me? Man, I, this last year, I don't know, just things, life. Will you help me? Ask the Holy Spirit sh- to, to show you how to, what's the next step in trusting Jesus more? What does that look like? Holy Spirit, will you help me learn to be courageous? To will you help me learn to love other people well? Because I, I don't know that I've been doing that very well. See, this is the process. If you understand that maybe you haven't been quite engaged, ask the Holy Spirit to help you engage, to wake you up and walk you into the harvest field, to proclaim Jesus in the world around you in word and deed. Hopefully begin to see people ask questions and come to faith because of it. What could it be like in 2020 if our church decided to all engage faith differently? Hear me, I'm not asking you to do 8 million different things just to ask the Spirit, what would you have me do next? Man, I'm eager to ask that question, to pray over it, to bathe it in prayer with you. I'm just asking you to pray that way with me. Side note. Do you feel the Spirit leading you to engage more? We have a prayer night tonight. You will never engage more without praying more. Like, that's just baseline. So that's available. We're going to get together. Um, Dennis is more nice than I am. Like, I wouldn't say drop by for 20 minutes. I'd say either give it an hour or don't go. But if if you want to engage, if you want to wrestle and pray, like, come. Say, God, I don't know where to start, but, man, I I feel you drawing me, so I, I just... I just want to pray and ask for you to work in me and in the church. I'd love to see you guys come, more of you come. It's not about having a, uh, it's not about attendance, but man, if we became more serious about the way that we approach God in prayer, there could be many things that he does over it. Now, I know that this message has been fairly specific. There are many assumptions inside of it that we are already believers and we're laboring well inside of it. So uh, before I walk away, I have to declare clearly that Jesus has come for us. That's the gospel, to pay for our sins and restore us to God. He has lived the life that we couldn't and paid the price for the sin that we should have to. And now he offers us forgiveness and pardon and adoption into his family. That is the gospel. My hope is that every man, woman, and child would submit to that truth, that all of us here would. To ask Jesus to be our Lord and Savior and then follow him with our lives, whatever he says that might look like. If you feels like something is messing with your heart and drawing you to that, may you consider that God is pursuing you and asking you to trust him. I'd be so happy to pray with you after service if you feel like that is the the case. There'd be several other people who would as well. But if you feel God drawing you, don't, don't leave and do nothing with it. Think of it, a good and gracious and sovereign king who created all things is trying to engage you. That's probably worth pursuing, and I hope that you would.